everybody. Welcome back. Uh, episode two of Everybody Needs a Nudge. Uh, I didn't introduce myself last time, so my name is Dan Najari, and I am your host of Everybody Needs a Nudge. Uh, if you listen to the intro, you sort of heard the background behind the name, behind the nickname. And I mentioned in my intro the nudge theory, um, and I did so uh, at the behest of a, a friend of mine who's actually the guest on the show today, Mark Gammons. Uh, the nudge theory, I, and, and I mentioned it, but I didn't really um, uh, pontificate or, or uh, explore or expand on it. Um, so I did a little bit of research, and by research I mean Google. Uh, I went on Google and did some searching on Google. That's my research. Uh, and and the nudge theory, as it was put forth um, in in my in this book here. Let's grab the book. In this book, uh, nudge, improving decisions about health, wealth, and happiness, um, by a t- couple of professors out of the University of Chicago. That talks about subtle little things that they did, whether it was in business or it was in marketing, and, and actually some governments ended up using it. But essentially, two examples that I thought were, were good uh, representatives of the nudge theory was, one, uh, they did a study on middle school-aged children and how to get them to eat better, and they figured out that the simply putting the food at eye level that they wanted them to eat. So if they wanted them to eat fruit, they put the fruit at eye level. If they didn't want them to eat Twinkies, they put the Twinkies down lower. And quickly they realized that because the fruit, that little nudge of putting the fruit at eye level or whatever food was put at eye level, uh, the middle school age kids ate the fruit instead of reaching for the Twinkie, which was down lower. So that was one of them. And the other one that I thought was very interesting was a, a study done, I forget where it was done, it might have been in Sweden, but essentially trying to improve men's aim in a urinal. Uh, and they created a urinal that had a, a fly etched into the side of the, into the urinal where you were aiming so that men would, would aim better, uh, thereby keeping their, you know, their urine inside the urinal. So those were two sort of nudge theory studies that were completed. Now this, what we're talking about here is a little bit different. This is sort of the nudges through life or the influences through life, uh, that have got you where you are, um, to in present day. So, so we'll have Mark Gammons is on the show today. He's a the head golf pro at Mark at uh, at Black Rock Country Club in Hingham, Massachusetts. Uh, Mark and I met. We live in the same town, Duxbury, which I think I mentioned in the intro. We met probably I don't know, fifteen, ten years ago. Mark, fifteen years ago now, somewhere around there. And the funny story there: we were at a uh, an oyster event down on Duxbury Beach, and I saw uh, a woman who I recognized from my days in college, uh, Lee Gammons. Uh, obviously you can tell by the last name that Lee turned out to be Mark's uh, wife. Uh, and so I went over to Lee and said hello, and, and Mark tells a funny story, and I don't want to ruin it, but essentially how his heart dropped anytime a man meets uh, a, another man from his wife's past, uh, there's always some concern about uh, what the history was there. Safe to say there's no history other than friendship between Lee and I from our college days, uh, but Mark was... Uh, you know, later on in our relationship, as it as it grew, he said, "Hey, man, I had a my heart dropped. I I didn't want to I didn't want to be around you had you had a, any sort of past relationship with my wife." So, uh, without further ado, I'll introduce, as I said, Mark Gammons, head golf professional at Black Rock Country Club here in uh, in Hingham, Massachusetts. Mark, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, first guest. So you are now the answer to a trivia question. Um, so give us a little background, Mark, sort of how you ended up where you are, 
you know, I started in high school. You could start wherever you want. But sort of what were the influences? Who, who, who sort of nudged you along in your path to end up being uh, the head pro at, at what I think, personal opinion here, and again, I said in the intro that I don't know any better than you, but personal opinion, probably the best golf course, uh, at least south of Boston, uh, and maybe one of the top in the state. It's a great question. I get that question a lot from people of how I found my way into the golf business, and then I like to say it kind of found me. Um, I grew up in Duxbury, Massachusetts. Another trivia question. I was born in Miamiville, Ohio, but I actually grew up in Duxbury, Massachusetts, right near Marshfield Country Club off the 11th hole. How old were you when you moved from Ohio? I was in second grade, so was that seven? Any buddies from back there still around, hanging around? No. No? No. Couldn't have been that memorable then. <laughs> I don't have many memories from there besides uh, the Cincinnati Reds were good at the time. Yeah. Besides getting out of there, that's your and, memory. Uh, the Bengals are actually pretty good. They had uh, a pretty big theme song back then. Was it Icky Shuffle? No, it was before Icky Shuffle. But um, moved to Duxbury, you know, kind of settled into this area. We had a golf course at the end of our street, which as kids do, we'd, we'd wander on there at times late at night uh, exploring the golf course and sometimes bringing clubs with us, sometimes not. It was a great bass fishing pond off uh, – You'd have to correct me, the 13th hole, 13, 13, 14, the par four and three right there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'd walk through there to get to that pond as well. Uh, Caddy a little bit on that golf course and spent a lot of great memories of my childhood with my brothers and some friends, you know, not really necessarily being there for golf, but just being out on the property and, and being out on the land and kind of fell in love with it without even realizing it. Kind of didn't ever really play golf around seventh grade. My oldest brother was a great golfer, still is. Uh, he can beat me. Uh, he's a doctor up in Vermont, but my best friend. Yeah, Dan's best friend that he's met twice. <laughs> and there is a nine-hole course in Duxbury called North Hill Country Club, which he was at. He brought me up there once um, to, to play, and you know, the first time I played, I loved it. And me and a couple of buddies ended up getting a junior membership there, and basically spent our whole summer, 7th and 8th grade, up there. And who, and who were those guys? Steve McClellan was one of them. Um, Pat Gillis was the other one. Yeah, okay. So two guys that uh, – and Jake Borden. So you know Jake well. You went there with – Yeah, Jake and I went to high school together, so there's another connection there. So we had a blast for two years. Uh, I got into it being around the club uh, – enjoying the game of golf, learning how to play the game of golf. And then, you know, high school came around, and i just a big fan of sports. I played every, everything I possibly could. We had um, conflicts in the golf season, so I didn't actually play golf, or a lot of golf, high school through college, you know, here and there, casually. So so what sports did you play in, uh, what sports did you play in high school? Uh, soccer, hockey, and lacrosse. Which, what was your uh, top sport? What sport do they enjoy the most? Well, you, yeah, you answer that question however you want to answer the question. What was your top sport? So both my brothers were really good athletes in, in their own, and we all played soccer growing up, played soccer. So I probably have the fondest memories of soccer. Um, we had a really good high school team, won the state championship, and it was special because we had been playing together since second grade. This all, guys, all those guys. All yeah. of us. What's all of us. What was that coach's name? He was a famous coach, right? Foster Cass. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you if you Google him, his high school record is incredible. Yeah, um, it's like three hundred wins or something crazy like that. Is it more than that? It's I think it's like six or seven hundred. Oh my goodness! So that was a very special moment in my life to you know to do that with our high school buddies. A lot of them went on to college to play uh, soccer, which I considered. Um, but in seventh grade, there was a guy by Burke Walker who moved to Duxbury from Maryland, and his son was a very good lacrosse player, and there was no lacrosse program in Duxbury at that time. So Burke took it upon himself to start this uh, this program with um, this other gentleman, Matt Ty's dad, who was a lacrosse referee, actually. Um, so in seventh grade, lacrosse kind of, I got lacrosse fever. It was just a fun, fast-moving, something different, and also something that my brothers never played. So... It was kind of my own sport. You were immediately the best in the family at it. 100%. And that meant something. That meant something. Yeah. I've, I w- I've met your brothers. That that that, uh, that that means something with those guys. Yeah, it wasn't easy to do with those two. Yeah, great athletes. Yeah, just in general, just kind of everything. They set yeah. the bar way too high. But, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> the doctors, and, and you're just a lowly golf pro. <laughs> so, um, lacrosse kind of. Took my took me unexpectedly at but, that so, time. But I don't, and I, I'm going to cut you off. But so there's one of those little nudges in life, right? This guy from Maryland moves into Duxbury, and and all of a sudden lacrosse is introduced into your world. I mean, I, I didn't. Uh, where you class of '94 from high school? Graduated in '95. Okay, so I didn't play any lacrosse, uh, and I didn't really see lacrosse until I got to their academy. But again, had had that guy not moves not moved to Duxbury, you probably would never played lacrosse. 100%. Yeah. And then you go on, and and and, and uh, Duxbury high lacrosse was like the top dog for the longest of times, right? Sort of on the heels of your your graduating class. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of really exploded after that. We had, I mean, don't quote me on these numbers, I want to say seven to ten kids who'd never picked up a lacrosse stick before seventh grade besides Burke Warkerson. Uh, go on to play college across. That's amazing. That started in seventh grade. So, who was on, the coach of that team? Uh, Eric Fecketer was his name. He was then went to Fairfield. He was at Quinnipiac. I don't know where he is now. Um, was he a Duxbury guy? He was a Duxbury guy. Got it. Yeah, he was a Duxbury. I think he went to Skidmore, played lacrosse up there, played lacrosse in private school. Went to somewhere. I don't know exactly where he went. But you guys win a? Did you, you never? You didn't win a lacrosse state championship. We didn't. We didn't. We had a really good team, but. Um, our freshman and sophomore year, we could only play JV because we were only freshmen and sophomores. And so junior and senior year, um, we were a varsity team and, you know, competed really well. And our senior year, that we had some high expectations. But I think that what happens sometimes when you, especially in a spring sport, when you have 18 to 20 seniors on the team, school's over and... Um, they get a little distracted. We got a little distracted. <laughs> so... Mark and I talk a lot about kids and sports and tryouts and making teams and not making teams. And and uh, for better or for worse, we've always had kids that are sort of either on the bubble or just make the team or, or make the team and don't get a lot of playing time. And and um, how to deal with that whole situation. And Bob Gammons has a great line, which is, which is what? When it comes to tryouts and playing time and all that stuff, what's his great line? Yeah, so I would... Even, you know, back in back when we grew up, there was always politics in sports, and some kids make it, some kids don't. And, you know, sometimes I'd go to him and, you know, be upset about what's going on, and he would turn to me and say, Mark, if you were better, it wouldn't matter. Great line. <laughs> if you were better, it wouldn't matter. 
Correct. Yeah. So it's, you know, and essentially, this is just saying, look at if if you were that good, then then you're not even in the mix of the conversation to not play. Make them make it so they have to play you, and that's a that's a concept that's uh, sort of lost a little bit, I think, now, Mark, with with youth sports. Would you agree? Uh, I completely agree. You know, and if you really, my dad's a man of few words. He's a great guy. I love him. He really was saying, you need to work harder. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to do you any favors by, you know, talking to this father or coach or, you know, you need to make it on your own. And if you put the work in and you're better, it wouldn't matter, Mark. You'd be on the team you want to be in. You'd be getting the playing time you would. And to your point, I think that concept's lost. You know, parents don't let kids find that path on their own anymore. And it's, uh, it's not doing them any favors in the long run. You know, I think kids grow in the adversity and – and to be met with challenges and to be met with disappointment and how to react to that and how to learn from it is uh, it's a life skill that you take with you. And I think a lot of kids aren't getting it these days, which is unfortunate, but, you know, hopefully, you know, I think things go in cycles and maybe this thing will swing back around one day and, and things will go back in the other direction. Uh, that's my hope anyways. Well, I mean, but I got to give Bob credit from a parenting standpoint too, because I'm sure, I'm sure, it hurt him, and and he was pissed off that you weren't playing, and and but instead of saying, yeah, you know what, Mark, that coach stinks, and you're better than Billy, and you're better than Johnny, you know, he just said be better, uh, which isn't easy to do. I, you know, I I got three kids right now. I got one in high school, and uh, you know, she's playing hockey up at a private school, and and she didn't get as much ice time as she wanted, and and I caught myself kind of in having conversations with her about how the coach this and the coach is that, and. At the end of the day, she just needed to work harder. She just has to get better and, and be able to compete for her spot. Um, and, and she's learning incredible lessons. And, and she's growing as a kid and a person because she is not being handed the starting role like she always has and always you know always wanted. Now she's got to work for it a little bit. And she's uh, and it's, and it's been a great you know 18 months that we've sort of seen the ups and downs of that. But, but I got to give Bob... Uh, Gammon's credit to, to, to just say, be better. Yeah. I mean, and it, at the end of the day, this is a total dad line as well, but, you know, sometimes life's not fair. Yeah. So it's like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. How do you deal with that when you get something thrown your way that, you know, is out of your control and you've done everything you can? And these are hard lessons for kids. I didn't get it at the time. And then my dad was right. I wasn't putting a lot of work in when I could have been. And, you know, retrospect, would I have liked to? Yeah, but at the same time, I had a great childhood. I have a ton of friends, and so I think everything worked out the way that it, it should have. But, you know, learning from these experiences, learning from these disappointments, again, it's a life skill that, that you need, and how do you react to it? And, you know, I have the pleasure of coaching my kids and other people's kids, and I say it to people who work for me, too. It's, you know, you just need you just want to know that you put your best effort in, and then you can walk away from something knowing that, you know what? There's nothing more I could have done. There's nothing more I could have done there. And when you do that, I think the when life, those unfair situations in life come at you, they're easier to take versus questioning, well, if I really did this when I was supposed to, if I did that, you know, you leave it up for some gray area that makes you question yourself a little bit more. So control what you can control. All right. So exactly. so 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 back to your <laughs> back to back. We got sidetracked, but that's okay. Back to so now we're, we're at high school. And um, uh, you, you've, you've got the nut. You got a little nudge over to the lacrosse sport. Uh, you, you play your varsity, your varsity seasons in your junior and senior year, and now what happens? 
Yeah, so it was a question, you know, what I wanted to do. And for me, I was just one of those kids who, for a long time, and probably still, like, never knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, some people have goals in life, and they know it from an early age that this is what they want to do in life, and I, I just didn't know. You yeah. know, and I just knew I enjoyed being around my friends. I enjoyed being around athletics, so that kind of led me on the path to where to go to school, um, where I went to school, a small D3 school in Virginia. Um to play lacrosse. Play lacrosse, yeah. So how do you end up there? Would the coach call you? I mean, Roanoke's a long way from Duxbury. So how does that happen? So I believe they probably still have them. They didn't have them as much back then, but they had these, you know, showcase tournaments where you'd go and call them whatever, peak 100, peak 200, peak 150, whatever you want to call it, where the coaches would come out and, you know, watch the kids from the best kids from the area. And so I went to a couple of those junior year and senior year and, Met the lacrosse coach there. Uh, one of the assistant coaches is up there uh, working the camp. And there was a couple kids from the South Shore who I knew already going there. So I ended up taking a recruiting trip down there. It was I can still remember to this day. It was February in Virginia, and I think it was like 75, 80 degrees. Yeah. It's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a, just an absolute – you'll see a common theme with me with land and being around uh, the mountains or the ocean. So – I just sat there, and there was this barbecue in the backyard at one of the lacrosse players' house, and sitting in the middle of Blue Ridge Mountain, staring out at the vista, and just being like, "I'm coming here." Yeah, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. Yeah. Um, regardless of anything else, it just felt like the right move at that point, and so I ended up down there, which was a great. I still have lifelong friends uh, that I keep in touch with uh, on a daily basis from there. Just really good people and. It was great to get away and out of the bubble. Um, what do you mean the bubble? Duxbury. Okay. <laughs> South Shore. Yeah. You know, the hard streets of Duxbury where mean I grew streets. up in. Um, mean streets of Duxbury. So. One stoplight. Correct. You know, and, and again, it was one of these things where I'm not flying down there. And so, I'd, you know, the first couple of years, I didn't even have a car. So I'd, I'd get a hitch a ride with somebody or I'd drive 12 hours and I was there until I could find a ride home. So you just kind of make your own way. You know, you're in your own, and uh, it was a great learning experience for me. And lacrosse, um, I think at that point, sports in general, and I think it's a common theme. You know, if I went back, I probably would have made some different decisions, but I had played sports three seasons all year round for a long period of time. And it's college lacrosse, and if you don't put the work in, it's going to show up pretty quickly and – I wasn't putting the work in, and that was pretty evident pretty quick. So um, so did a short stint down there and then um, didn't play, you know, from basically sophomore year on, knowing that my time was kind of But you done. stayed at the school. Stayed at school, yep. So you didn't pack up and enter what's now known as the transfer portal and try to go somewhere else because you, you felt like the coach was giving you a raw deal, right? So that goes back to what Bob Gammons taught you. Right, whether you knew it or not, your sophomore year, you immediately implemented that sort of uh, be better. Yep. And and you didn't want to be better. You wanted to go do what you were doing and live life, and that's fine. I, I think what what the message there is that you recognized uh, that you would have to do more to get more playing time, and you made a decision to say, you know, I, I've got other things going on in my life, and I want to enjoy them. And I don't. I think that's the a lot of what I see in youth sports and the people that I coach, 
is that they want to get to this Division three or Division one and play college sports, mostly hockey, uh, but they don't understand the amount of work, A, that goes into getting there, and then the amount of work that goes into staying there. Uh, and um, so I saw a lot of a lot of my friends at Boston College sort of play one or two years of hockey and then move on to other things, not because they, you know, they, uh, the coach didn't like them, but their priorities changed for good or for bad, and, and they recognized that and recognized that they didn't want to put the work in, and that's fine, and that's okay. Correct. Uh, and I think that's the messaging that's missed sometimes is that it's, it's okay to have a great high school sports career. Uh, and and have fun playing high school sports. And if you don't play in college, you don't play in college. It's not the end of the world. Uh, and I think that's lost on a lot of people in, in the sports world. But so so you do your four years at Roanoke, um, and then you get out, and you still have no absolutely no idea what you're going to do with your life. Correct? Zero. None whatsoever. And then what happens? I go be a ski bum in Colorado. Oh man, where? So, <laughs> so in Keystone, one of our friends from. Um, well, two of them had headed out there over the summer. One of our friends has uh, dad had a place out there, and so I'm sitting friend, around. Friend from friend from Roanoke, or from Roanoke, Roanoke. Yep. Um, sitting around trying to figure out what I'm going to do. They said come out here for the winter, so I packed up my stuff and drove out there. What what, what, what kind of car were you driving at the time? I actually hitched a ride with another friend. Uh, Ellie Page is her name. I think she lives in Long Island now. Great girl. Um, she was Ellie, if you're out there listening, that's a little shout-out to you. Yeah, great oh, lacrosse the, player, too. Um, the one that got away. So she you know, she she gave me a ride out there and dropped me off in Colorado, and that was September-ish. Um, spent, you know, from September basically through almost May out there just living in Colorado. I worked at a restaurant at the base of Keystone Mountain, I worked at Arapahoe Basin in the morning uh, serving breakfast. That's how I got my ski pass. Uh, epic ski pass was uh, $200 for A Basin, Keystone, Breckenridge, Copper, Vale. I forget what else. but Pretty good deal. Oh, amazing deal. So, so you were slinging eggs, and s- slinging eggs in the morning and skiing in the afternoon. Slinging eggs, skiing, then into the restaurant at night to work um, – I was working as a line cook in a restaurant at the base of the mountain. So more or less the routine was wake up, go to work, put my skis on, ski, come down, go to work, go to bed, do it again. Pretty Um, good life. That was amazing. But you can see how someone could get stuck out there. So that was kind of one of the reasons I ended up coming back to was I'm looking around and some of the waiters and bartenders I'm hanging out with are, you know, at the time I thought they were old. They're probably like 40, 45, yeah. maybe my age. Yeah. Uh, and they've been doing it for 20 plus years and just looking in the mirror being like, ah, I don't think this is what I want to do. But right. it was the day that we left. I could go on and on about this. So me and my friend Pete found this old van. Um, what do you mean found a van? Found a van. <laughs> Walking down the street like you find a quarter? I mean, how do yeah. you find a van? It's, uh, to drive back from Colorado. This whoa, whoa, whoa. Guy, Answer the question. How did you find a van? From A friend of a friend. Okay, all right. So we, wa- we walked, uh, so we looked at this thing. This guy who built this van was a distributor for Miller in Arkansas, a huge Razorback fan. So he outfitted this 1979 Ford van for tailgating at uh, Razorbacks games. Amazing. So the entire inside, the seats, you know, four, four captain's chairs, a back, th- uh, 
bench set went down to a bed. The all the upholstery was um, Miller High Life wool. <laughs> That's incredible. It's a, it's I still have pictures of it. So we fell in love. Didn't do research per normal uh, about how well conditioned this thing was, and we're like we're definitely driving this thing across. Hundred percent buying this thing. And the last day we left, uh, I don't know if it be on the A Basin. A Basin is kind of like the locals mountain out there. The majority of the mountains above treeline, they have a parking lot called the beach. Dogs are allowed to run free. There's bands there playing all the time. Um, so the last day was a beautiful spring day, and it gets a ton of snow out there in April. So it was a beautiful spring day. We skied all day, came down, we're in the parking lot, sun setting over the Rockies. There's a band playing, and me and Bob McGee, I remember it to this day. Um, keg beer flowing, just people throwing Frisbees, dogs running up and down them. And I'm like, where am I going? Right. Why am I leaving this? Why am I leaving? Um, but it was time. It was definitely time to leave. So, so what was the nudge to get you to leave? Just that, just looking across the table at somebody as you're having a having a cold Miller high life and saying, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, it was just like I got to do something. Yeah, I got to figure out something here. Yeah. And but, may, maybe it was that, but I was like, I need to figure out if this is what I want to do because I do love it. Yeah. But I miss. I mean. My family, my mom and dad, my brothers, everybody was here. Yeah. Everybody was in the South Shore of Boston or around it or the East Coast. So being that far away is tough. Yeah. Um, so I definitely wanted to get back for a while and settle down, try to figure out what was going to happen. So a funny story about that van. We drove out of the Rockies, got to Denver, and the engine basically exploded. <laughs> there was oil going everywhere. So you're we, not very, you're, you're not a, you know, a mechanic by any stretch. Oh, no, no. <laughs> so we pull into the, you know, this local, and we give it to this guy. We're like, hey, can you take a look at this? We know what's going on. So he comes back. And he's like, I highly suggest buying plane tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, well, if that's not an option, what do we do? He's like, you're going to need to get cases of oil because this thing's leaking like a sieve. <laughs> So at every time we bought gas, we bought a case of oil, and we filled it up. I mean, it didn't get the mileage. It was terrible, too. Um, we would fill it up with oil, um, and somehow we made it. So I don't even know how. We made it all the way back. That's amazing. We had to change our – we were going to go out to Utah and then down to New Orleans, and we ended up oh, driving. So you were going to do a whole tour of the – Well, yeah. We ended up just going from Colorado to the Ozarks, which is beautiful camped there for a few days, and then went up to Roanoke, uh, stopped in to see some people. Van got put up on blocks again, fixed again, and then drove it home, uh, had it for the summer, and apparently had a, a massive exhaust leak, too, because figured that out later. Um, the guys, we were driving around, and it, whatever. It was, a, it was an amazing experience. So made my way back. Um, wasn't really sure what I was going to do. We have a f common friend um, whose stepfather was the director of golf at Red Tail in Fort Devens. He said, come work for me. Fort Devens is, uh, that's the old uh, Navy, uh, Army base, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so back when I was at Thayer, we used to play Lawrence Academy in golf, and we would go out to Fort Devens, and it was a dump of a golf course. Um, and then somebody bought it and turned it into Red Tail, which is a pretty fancy place now, right? Public, semi-private. Semi-private, yeah. Great but, golf course. Yeah. Beautiful uh, setting. Beautiful right? setting, yeah. yeah. Great facilities. Yep. 
and so spent the spent the summer working out there. Um, loved it, and this turned to you know this gentleman Jim Pavlik and said, you know, if I'm interested in doing this, how do I do it? Yeah, and that's kind of like how the career got started. It's you know it's funny because the other kid that I was working with, the assistant pro, this guy Ryan Fontaine, is now the director of golf at uh, Baltistro. Oh wow! So there's two of us out there scrubbing bats in Fort Devens. Uh, Obviously, the director of golf ball strolls. That's pretty, a big. That's a big time. That's job. That's a big time job. Um, so can we get on there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we know. We, we take that off air. I guess we don't want to. We, we don't want to give away any secrets about where we can get on and where we can't. Yeah, that's my, fine. My phone will be flooding. We'll take, um, take it. Up. Maybe we'll bring your brother, my best friend. When our kids get older. Fine. So, went to Florida for the winter with plans to come back. Uh, to the, this place called the Ritz-Carlton Jupiter. Not to give you too much history on that, but it, for a brief period of time, the Ritz was interested in the private golf club business. Ritz was, Jupiter was the first one. They were going to open 10 private golf clubs with club homes. Similar, I guess, concept to like a timeshare where you know, those members could go to these other private clubs and play as well and stay in these club homes. Uh, it was a great experience working for the Ritz. I mean, the Ritz training and what you learn there is... I can't even put a value on it. You mean the, the customer service? The customer em- service, employee. the attention to detail, yeah. the way they treat their employees. Yeah. Uh, you know, walking into a Ritz, why it's such a great franchise and hotel and people are willing to pay top dollar for it. Yeah. So yeah. that training. But I, and, I, and I can say that that training, you can, you can see it in the product that you put out uh, at BlackRock with – your staff, when you go over there, sort of the attention to detail and uh, and and how well it's run over there. So kudos to you for for keeping that going. Yeah. So I mean, so that training, you know, my boss at the time was Brian Bushy. Um, Terrible last name. He was my. I mean, this probably goes. You can channel this back to my dad. Is just my best uh, mentors, my, you know, the people I work for push me the hardest and Brian pushed people pretty hard yeah. to the point where he would chase some people out. Uh, but the strong survived and you yeah. learned a lot from him and you learned why you were putting all this extra work into a minute detail. Um, it just goes a long way. And he, so he was kind of the first one to really expand my mind on the details, the finer details and, you know, the rich training as well. Um, customer service, follow up, and, and all the, all that that goes along with it. So I ended up spending five winters down there, and three of them full time, two of them going back and forth. My second winter, Lee came down. When did, so so back up. Uh, you had met Lee already at this point. I had met Lee already at this Wait, point. Lee, so Lee, for those that don't know, is Lee Gammons, uh, Mark's wife. Another better athlete than me. Yeah, way better athlete. Division one, at, like myself, also a division one athlete. Everybody golf, but still a division one athlete. Yeah, Lee was a division one soccer player at Boston College. She was a year behind me. I think she graduated in '99. Correct. Yeah. Um, so where did you meet her? So, if you want to talk about these little nudges or life coincidences, That's exactly my my family that grew up on the street next to me, Tim Foley, was my best friend growing up. He met uh, this this girl, Kendra Medville. So I've just got to remember her name. Yeah. Working on the Warren Tolman campaign back so she's, in the day. So so Kendra is a Watertown girl, correct? Who dated 
John Arasian, whose brother, Bob Arasian, was one of my college roommates. And Bob will be a guest on the show. He's a realtor in, in, uh, in Watertown, uh, and his family's a big Watertown family, and they're a big Democrat family. Uh, and, and they remember Warren Tolman? I'm the toll man. <laughs> <laughs> that, was his, that, was his, uh, that was his ad campaign, but I digress. But, but, but John and Kendra dated all through high school. I didn't know. That. Well, maybe yeah. I knew that. And did your buddy go to where he goes? Uh, he went to University of Delaware. Okay. So he yeah, was, I think that's what she, she went to. She Kendra was a lacrosse player, I think, or soccer player. Field hockey. Field hockey player. Yeah. yeah field hockey. So yeah. they met on the Tolman campaign, um, and Lee was living with Kendra and college roommates and best friends. So Lee started hanging around, you know, a little bit, and it's funny because. I was living with a couple other people, you know, Matt Leahy and Parker Lillil, and Timmy basically told us that Lee was off limits. He really liked Kendra, and he didn't want us to screw it up with any <laughs> of our friends. So, um, but I can tell you from the minute I met Lee, it was um, I enjoyed being around there. Love so, at first sight. Yeah, maybe you know what I, I, you could call it that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's a beautiful woman, intelligent, athletic, and. Enjoyed our conversations and we tough got tough as nails. Yeah, tough as nails. Um, enjoyed our conversations, enjoyed each other's company, and and kind of you know built on it from there. But shortly after that, you know, I was like, um, strangely enough, you know, I was, my plan was you know living in Watertown, working at Redtail. Lee move we, Lee and I move in together. I know for the Catholic people out there, that's not proper but we did and my brother was there too and we apologize to all the Catholics <laughs> um Lee's Catholic too so are my kids um are they uh, uh, practicing Catholic do you go to church so uh, we can address that oh what well, answer the question <laughs> yes they do they do they do yeah so you your, uh, your kids go to church every Sunday no oh, okay no but they do faith formation they they go to church periodically but they they're involved in the church in some form but not they're not going to church every Sunday. Were you, did you grow up Catholic? I did not. Okay. I did not. Um, so we could get into spirituality on another well, episode, that, but Yeah, I, I'm more interested in, uh, you know, because I, I grew up Catholic but didn't go to church, but my parents grew up Catholic, and they were in church every Sunday, like, religiously. And, and Nick Todman here in the office talks about how he grew up in church all day on Sundays. So it's always interesting to me to, to see who's going to church and who isn't. Uh, and who's done it as part of their life. That's all. Yeah, I'm happy it's in my kids' life. I think the church has some really great values um, that they teach. You know, the value, the number one of it is, you know, be a good person. Yeah. So how can that be a a bad thing to teach them? And expose them to them, expose them to different religions, expose them to different areas, and let them choose. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Let them choose. So so you then ask Lee to move to Florida with you. Yeah, so Lee, my brother, and I were living in Watertown, and then I broke her. Wait, 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 wait. You, your brother, and your wife were living together? Well, we not, weren't not, married at the time. Not married at the time, but okay. Um, and I broke the news to her that I'm going to Florida, and she's going to be living in Watertown with my brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Which brother? Greg. Oh, okay. So spent the winter down there, got offered a job to stay full-time at that point. You know, Lee had graduated nursing school and then got a, a, a job offer for traveling nurse down there. And she came down and she we spent three years down there together. 
the last year we came back to get married. I worked for James Antonelli at uh, Marshall Country Club. I uh, got married that summer, went back down, pretty much thinking that that was the last last time I'd go down there yeah. and then we'd be making our way back because, you know, a talk of starting a family and and that's what happened. So um, the plan was to come back to Marshfield, but then got a job offer at Boston Golf Club, which was hard to turn down at the time. J.J. Weaver was the director of golf there who was um, head, one of the head professionals at Augusta National. Pretty good, connect, pretty good connect there. So... Boston Golf Club was brand new. Uh, it was an exciting time. The clubhouse wasn't even built. Um, hard to turn down an offer from J.J. Yeah. Weaver yep. and to, to work for someone like that. So I went there, um, spent two years there. Boston Golf is also in Hingham. They're almost, I mean, they're neighbors, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Though, that land, you want to talk about real estate and development. There was uh, two golf courses basically built, <laughs> call it, started in 99, 2000. In Hingham. Yeah, which is amazing, right? I mean, and uh, and Boston Golf was the brainchild of who, though? Uh, was that Fidelity? No, so this guy, John Minnick, who unfortunately passed away building the place. Um, absolutely loved golf. Was a member of Brayburn. I unfortunately didn't have a chance to meet him. He passed away before I got there, but he was his brainchild. Got it. He wanted a true golf club. You know, he, he loved the golf experience for what it was, not all the extra amenities and if you go to Boston Golf Club this day, that's kind of how it's built. Yeah, no frills. No frills. This very simplistic. I mean, amazingly done. The clubhouse, the lockers. If you go there, I mean, I, I've done the tour a lot. It's been a while now, almost 13 years. But um, all the lockers, the woodwork, the vanities are all made out of wood from on property. Is that right? Yes. I didn't know that. So they took the trees down. They milled them. You know, this guy out of Rhode Island, um, famous woodworker, built everything. From hand. Well, it's amazing. So, you know, to at, at some point you have to talk about real estate, right? Because this is supposed to be a real estate podcast. But you think about you've got 18 holes at Black, I mean, at yeah, call it Black Rock. And then you've got 18 holes at, um, at Boston Golf, probably in one of the most uh, affluent towns, probably on the South Shore, if not the most affluent town. What is that property worth? I mean, it, I can only imagine what they could have sold if they, if they subdivided all that land and built houses on it. I mean, it's, it's, it's well, well into nine figures. Yeah. I had to think at the time, if you know, I didn't, you'd have to get the people originally in on it and hopefully you can get my owner on the show. He'd be a great, great addition to the show. He's been in real estate his whole life commercial and then developed this club. I think at the time there was better land to build on and hang them. You know, one was a rock quarry. The other one had a lot of wetlands to deal with. Yeah. And if you're looking in, to the properties of best bang for your buck, those ones are probably pretty expensive to develop at the time. But but just the sheer size of it. Oh, it's amazing. Um, it's ama so uh, the economy of scale, you know, there had to have been, there had to at least been some thought about uh, when they acquired the land to 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 make it uh, into all residential. But uh, you know, it's it. I'm glad they didn't. They're two beautiful golf courses. Uh, I've been lucky enough to play both. Um, you know, played BlackRock a, a bunch because of your connection over there. But um, and I enjoy both. Uh, but it's just amazing that you get off the highway, and that's the other thing. Like it, it's it, they're in a part of Hingham that's super accessible. One hundred percent. You know, so from a real estate standpoint, you know, Hingham's a beautiful town and it's got beautiful properties. But a lot of them are are twenty twenty five minutes off the highway. You know, if you get over towards 
sort of the harbor and, uh, you know, um, Hingham Center. It's a long ride at times, depending on the traffic going down Main Street. So these two properties are, you know, right near Derby Street and right near the exit and super accessible and, and, and tucked into already residential areas. Uh, so it's, it's I can only imagine the value there. But, um, but anyway, that, so, so you do your time at, at Boston Golf. And do you go straight from Boston Golf to, to BlackRock? Yeah, so, you know, do my time and, you know, give props to, you know, JJ, who was a great mentor, Boomer Eric, who's there now, you know, just learned from best of the best in the industry, um, getting me ready for this opportunity that came up at BlackRock. So I got word of it in, I think, probably August that the position was going to be open and got to work on you know like everything in life it's it's not only your resume it's connections and who you know and growing up in the south shore and my dad working in boston and having two older brothers um, it wasn't hard to put together you know a lot of connections with blackrock and get me in front of the right people so that being said you know you still got to sit there and present uh in front of this group and they got to believe that you're the right candidate for the job and there was a lot of great candidates for the job you know luckily they chose me and I was able to settle back down in the South Shore where I grew up and where I wanted to be and near my wife's family, near my family, and, you know, it's worked out really well for me, and I couldn't could be more grateful for how things turned out. So so how long have you been at BlackRock now? This will be my 13th season. And how long has BlackRock been around? 2002. So I'm going to have to do the math. It's 20, 20 years. years. So, so, so you're, the, you're, you're the second pro? Third. Third? Third. By far the longest tenured. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, you're synonymous with BlackRock at this point. Um, the first pro was Jack Bowman, who's who's now not a professional anymore. He's doing real estate down in the Cape. But uh, he was instrumental in getting the place off the ground, and he was really good about, you know, when you open a new club, the Ritz was new, and we helped open some other properties. It's it's a lot of, you know, hey, meet this person. You, you enjoy their company and organizing games and getting people together. And yeah. I kind of stepped into a club that already – you know, it had been established a little bit, and the members knew each other, so... A little bit easier. A little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and then the second professional is Evan Belcher. He was there for about, I think, four years, maybe? Uh, and then I and then I came in shortly after that. Got it. Got it. So, uh, and now... Um, so, so all of those little nudges along the way, whether it was uh, meeting the guy at the Ritz or the guy coming in from Maryland, uh, to sort of start your, your lacrosse career. Uh, it's sort of amazing how all those little influences, uh, and do, you know, land you where you are today. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's, it's, I guess you can say everything happens for a reason, but it's, it's, I don't really 100% buy into that, but it's, Thing, these little nudges move you in the direction without you even knowing, you know, where you're going. You're not, you're not conscious of it. Um, you're kind of moving in a way that that steers you in, into a life that you want to live, hopefully. Yeah, and, and I think the, the perfect example of that to sort of br- bring it all together here is, is, is sort of the conversation that you had with your father. You know, you got to be, you, you know, be better so you're not on the bubble. Uh, and then you sort of recognizing that uh, later on in life when you were at um, when you were at uh, Roanoke, and then sort of taking that as sort of an underlying theme all the way through, uh, you know, and, and just being better, quite frankly, right? And 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 the finer details, and sort of taking to that Ritz Carlton um, theory of of making sure everything's buttoned up, and 
it's rele- it's relevant to sort of what we do here at Crowd Lending, uh, especially on the loan side, and and uh, you know we're sort of a two headed monster, uh, as as some of you know, some of you don't. But we're essentially uh, we we raised a whole bunch of capital to accredited investors. We went out and we raised about thirty million dollars, and then we take that thirty million dollars and we um, we make private money loans or hard money loans, which I I prefer the term hard money. Talked a little bit about that in the intro, intro because that's what we are. You know, we're not. Uh, I don't want to dress it up and have it be something that it's not. We're hard money loans that we lend to um, guys that are doing fix and flips and condo conversions. And then, uh, you know, so so we're sort of a two-headed monster. As I said, we've got the investors that come in, and then we go out and we make these loans. And and the devil's in the details when we're doing these loans. You know, uh, and and it could be. You know, we talked a little bit, Mark, about where you grew up down in Duxbury, right? Great real estate market. Uh, Hingham, great real estate market. But but if you don't know those things and you try to get into the real estate game, I think that's where you can get hurt. And so, the, you know, you can go one street over in a certain area and, and have a great location and then go another street over and, and not have not so great a, a location. And, and um, I think that's actually pretty relevant in, in our hometown, right, uh, of Duxbury, this sort of a whole bunch of different areas, the whole town is kind of chopped up. Would you agree with that, Mark? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. you, you've got you've got the high-end sort of King Caesar Road and, and out, out that area, then you've got Washington Street and Bay Road and then sort of the other side of the tracks. Uh, you've, so, so, and I say that because it's important to know those details uh, when you're doing a real estate deal. Well, absolutely. And, and you see most of the big developments trying to get pushed through are on that other side of the town right now, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of fight for, you know, con- conserving land and wetlands. So, I, you know, not knowing a lot about the business, I can, I'm can i sure you could get into trouble quickly if you don't do your homework about the, the site and the value of it and what type of roadblocks you're going to go against. Yeah, and I think you need to know those roadblocks. And, and part of what we do here at Crowd Lending with our, our borrowing base is, you know, we have them come in, Mark, so so let's say you had a deal and you came to me and said, hey, I got this property at 123 Main Street and I'm going to buy it for $400,000 and I'm going to put $100,000 into it and it's going to be worth $1.2 okay? Well, where is it? You tell me where it is and then I, we're going to get into the details of that deal. Uh, why, you be, why are you buying it at such a discount? Why... What is your construction budget? What exactly are you going to do to the property to increase the value by almost twofold? And I'm being maybe I'm being a little bit um, aggressive on the resale price, but the point is, we're going to sit down with you, Mark, as a borrower here, and say, "Are you sure this is a good deal?" Let's really look at the details because what can happen and what does happen with our with our borrowers sometimes is that uh, they get blinded by the numbers, right? So you, you can write down anything you want on a piece of paper, but but does it make sense? And and if you were a, a, a novice investor or didn't have sort of the bandwidth to figure out the details, we're going to help you with that, not only because we want to make sure it's a good deal for us, but also because we want to make sure it's a good deal for our borrower and subsequently to that, a good deal for our investors to get involved in. Um, so, so, you know, the details, and, and that sort of goes back to what you were talking about with, you know, making sure the details are all tightened up uh, from your training at, at the Ritz. No, absolutely. It, it's just, I think it, it transforms over all industries, but if you're not doing your homework and, you, and you're not poking holes in it, then you, you're not setting yourself up for success. Yeah. So 
you know, let's use Duxbury example, you know, there's a lot, there's a pretty big history, especially recently of these developers getting shut down after they buy the property. Yep. So if they're coming to you saying this is a home run deal, then all of a sudden you're doing your research. You're like, well, the last five deals got shut down by the town. That's right. How are you going to do this differently? How is it going to get pushed through? Right. Um, I could see you getting caught pretty quickly in a situation that, you know, it's not going to be profitable. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And so, so, uh, how do you, how do you combat that or how do you confront that if you're if you're an investor out there a guy that's going to do fix and flips so, you know you're you know how would you apply mark you, you find this piece of property how would you apply sort of your devil's in the details attitude to a, to a project that uh, that you were looking at that's a great question <laughs> not having much experience um, the first thing I would do is you just you can't assume that you have all the answers uh, I'd be reaching out to every person I knew possible that has experience in real estate, has experience in development, has experience in construction, environmental scientists, people from the town, just before even just talking to them. You'd just be gathering information. Just gathering information. So so take me back now to your days at Black Rock, right? So 13 years ago, you go from being an assistant pro where, yeah, you, you're sort of the devil's in the details and you were obviously a high-end assistant, and but you were still getting direction. Right, Correct. you still you still had a boss. You weren't running the show. Now you get this job over at BlackRock, and it's kind of like, oh, okay, I got it now. Oh, now what? Yeah. Uh, and and sort of, how did you figure out what you needed to do, and 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 what details to pay attention to, and and sort of what was your what was your training in that as you went as you became a head pro? Yeah, I think you just got to realize that. You don't have all the answers, yeah. especially thinking that you do, you know, coming out of an experience. But you always had backup, you know, as an assistant or working under somebody. And uh, to your point, when that's not there, you need to reach out to your peers. You need to reach out to the to the current people who, uh, you know, are using the club, the members and, you know, the past professionals. And, again, just trying to get the history of it, you know, and, and trying to figure out why this is – in this place and it could be for a good reason and could not be for a good reason. But, um, the times that I made the biggest mistakes is kind of early on was, you know, making a decision that I thought was best for everybody, not doing my homework, making the change. And then all of a sudden, you know, the phone or email starts blowing up that like, why would you make such a change? We've been doing it for this long. This is why. And you know, you're sitting there going, I'm sorry. Like I, I, I didn't do my homework. You know, I thought I was doing the right thing. And, you learn from those experiences. Hopefully it doesn't hurt you too much, but, you know, that's part of growth. Yeah, and I think that uh, the other thing you realize uh, in that exact scenario is that if you did your homework uh, and then you get that phone call, oh, hey, why are you making this change? Because I, I, I do think one of the biggest uh, issues that I have, whether it's at a country club or my business here or anything is, you know, when you ask somebody, hey, why do you, why do, you do it that way? Oh, that's the way we've always done it. Yeah, that's that's not an answer. No. Right. Um, you know, and, and uh, I, I have an ongoing conversation with Chris here in my office because he wants to hire an assistant and he keeps sort of hiring these. You know, we, we can't find the right person, essentially. We're doing it a certain way. And I keep saying to him, well, why do you keep doing this? Well, it's the way I've always done it. Yeah, but it's not working. Yeah. Right. And, and that's not the answer. So 
but to my point, if, if, if you do do your research and you do have those conversations, whether it's a, a decision you're going to make at the country club or a decision you're going to make with a real estate deal or a decision on the investment side, whether or not to invest with crowd lending, and, and, and you can, someone calls and says, why'd you make that decision, Mark? Why'd you, I don't know, why'd you move the T's up? And you can say, well, I spoke to these 10 people and I did my homework and I, I went out and I looked at past scores and I knew the weather was going to be no good. And I had all this information, right? Whatever the information is to help you make that decision. Now, when you go and explain to that person why you did it, you know, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to say, okay, that makes sense. Or they're going to just shut you down because, you know, they, that's what they want to do. They just want to shut you down. But at least you're armed with information as to why you made the decision. And I think that's sort of what we try to Im uh, impress upon any new borrower that comes to us is you've got to have all the information. And, and I can go, I can talk to sort of my back office here with, uh, with Allison Boyd and, and now Charlie, who's joined us from, from London. Uh, you know, they look at the deals before they get to me, right? And, and I'm trying to impress upon them, this is the information that I need to make a decision. So this is the information that you need to get from that borrower. And if that borrower is not providing you with that information, well, that's a red flag. Yep. Right. If, or, or if it's, you know, uh, maybe we might be able to do this or we might be able to do that. Or, you know, I, I talked to a contractor and that's how I got my number. No, that's that's not uh, that's not detailed enough. And and I can tell you that we probably lose deals uh, here at Crowd Lending um, because we ask those questions up front. Uh, I don't want to get in a situation where we issue a term sheet to a borrower. And, and so, so maybe if you don't know, but a term sheet is essentially our agreement that says these are the terms of the loan. We're gonna we're gonna make this loan to you. Uh, I, I don't want to even issue that term sheet because people get a false sense of security, and I don't want to issue that term sheet until I have all the information. Well, sometimes it takes time to gather that information. When I say time, maybe it's a day, twenty four hours, forty eight hours. We're not talking about a long time, but people sometimes go other to other lenders because they're not asking those questions, and inevitably, what ends up happening is they get their term sheet, which they think the deal's now done. There's always some fine print in the term sheet that says they can kill the deal if X, Y, Z. They get down the road and then X, Y, Z pops up and then that lender kills the deal and inevitably they're coming back to us to say, hey, can you do this deal? Here's the information that you requested the first time around. Yeah. Uh, and it, does that happen where you are at work? Do, do you have similar situations where you sort of, you sort of rag, you rag the puck a little bit before you make a decision and then somebody else makes the decision for you, whether it's a committee member or whether it's your boss or something, and, it, and eventually it, it, it turns around and said, well, if I had this information, we never would have made that decision. Yeah, I think you can kind of spin in a different direction of like, you need to run your operation, whatever industry you're in, under the values and morals that you want to, right? And if you kind of have that as your compass, and people want to make a decision that doesn't agree with that, that's okay, right? Um, normally, I shouldn't say all the time, but normally it ends up blowing up and they come back and sometimes that needs to happen. Yeah. You know, and I say it with my kids, like some, they need to make mistakes. They have never done this before. I'm telling them not to do it, but they've never experienced it. So right. they go out and experience it and they come back and you're like, you know what, you're right. I did it with my parents, right? you know, and my mentor. So... And you just got to kind of, you know, find your focus and what you want to focus on, you know, for your investors and uh, your lenders. And, you know, this is how we operate and you build a reputation and, you know, people understand that you're always out for their best interest, even if they may not agree with you. And 
sometimes they go a different direction and you know, it, it doesn't work out and they come back to you and say, you're right. And sometimes they go a different direction. And it just, they never come back, but right, that's, that, it works out, right? Yeah, Cause and it they, works they out smarter than that guy. Yeah. So that's okay. Yep. You know, and just as long as you're comfortable with the, the way you're running it, um, your operation and the way you're handling your, your clients, then I think at the end of the day, you can, you can lie down in bed and, you know, be comfortable. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I try to instill here at crowd lending uh, for our borrowers is that when I do issue a term sheet and when we do issue a term sheet, it means something, yep. you know, it means we're going to close that loan. Uh, I don't, and, 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 you know, I'd, I'd, I'd ask your opinion and, and, and I'd ask everybody who's listening to his opinion. Would you rather have somebody issue a term sheet and with all these conditions in it and then back out at the 11th hour, or would you rather spend a little time up front getting to a place where everybody's comfortable with the deal and you know once that ter- term sheet is issued, you've got somebody in your corner and you've got, the, you've got the money and you've got the finances to go ahead and purchase your property. You know, to me, it doesn't make sense to just get a term sheet just to get a term sheet. Yeah. Um, and so we try to, here at Crowd Lending, we try to make sure that when we issue a term sheet, it means something to our borrowers. And, you know, again, it means something to our investors because they're, they know what they're investing in. And, and we're an open book here. And you can see, you know, if you are an investor with Crowd Lending, you can, you can, uh, you get access to a portal. You get access to all of our documents, our mortgages, our notes. You can see everything. Everything's transparent. So we want to make sure that those deals are the best that we can. And the only way to do that is to gather the information. Just like if you were going to make a decision at BlackRock or you're going to make a decision at home, right, uh, as it relates to your children, you're going to want to gather up all the information. Uh, and and so that's what we try to do here. And sort of that's the details to go back to sort of what you were talking about with the devil in the details and, and learning the sort of the Ritz-Carlton way, which you talk about a lot, you know, uh, when we have our discussions. You talk about the training that you received at Ritz-Carlton and how it influenced not just your, your career but your whole life. Um, it, it, that, that's a reoccurring theme with you. You realize that, right? I don't think I realize it as much until you say it, but yeah, 100%. It, it changed the, my view of how I look at things 100%. Like yeah. it's, I think you're pretty similar. I walk into, I'm just curious by nature, but I'll walk into a room and then I'll start picking out how's this run? What's going on here? Yeah. What happens if this happens? You know, and that's just the way my brain works now. Yeah. Um, I try not to be public about it and say it out <laughs> loud because it might offend people, but I, that's what I do. I, you know, I kind of walk into a building. I walked in this building, I'm like, where's the gym? You know, I'm, right. st- I'm starting to figure out the footprint of this place. And yeah. Um, yeah, the, the more that you kind of have that mindset, it just becomes natural instinct to do wherever you go. And I think you set yourself for success that way. So I would actually, you know, to sort of equate your life to my life, that Ritz-Carlton training is is much like a law school training was for me. It taught me how to think. Yep. Um, you know, if I, I got three kids, one's a junior in high school right now, and if they came to me and said, hey, I want to go to law school, I'd say that's great. Go to law school, but you got to do two things. You got to do a dual, uh, dual study. So you got to get a business degree to go along with your law degree, and you can't practice law because the practice of law is very, very difficult. It's you know you're you're the product. You you see people for the most part uh, at their lowest, or at least in a um, adversarial scenario, which sometimes brings out the worst in people. Some people can deal with. You know, some people can deal with lawsuits and some people can't. And, you know, the layperson who's not involved in a business where litigation is, is sort of part of the day-to-day, it, it, 
being involved in a lawsuit is a it's a taxing, uh, mentally and physically taxing scenario for most people to be involved in. Uh, whether it's a car accident, whether it's uh, something to do with your contractor who came to your house and you know screwed up your house or whatever it is. So and and what happens is there's like a transference, right? So people they start to identify you as the attorney with the problem. Yep. Uh, and so, but that being said, law school taught me how to think, critically think about situations uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that's different than, than I think those that didn't go to law school. Now, some people receive that training another way, and, and, and I'm not saying law school is the only place where you can learn how to think critically. I'm not at all, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that lawyers across the board are the smartest people in the room because they're not. I know a lot of dumb lawyers, quite frankly. Um, uh, and we can get into that. There's two types of lawyers in the world. There's deal makers and deal breakers. You know, Some lawyers want to keep a deal together and they'll do what they can to keep it together and they'll play along nice in the sandbox. And then there's other lawyers that effectively want to be the smartest guy in the room and that's going to amend, that's going to amount to being a deal breaker. So I, you know, And I can tell right away uh, because of my 20-something years experience of dealing with, with lawyers, who a deal-breaker is and who a deal-maker is. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, but that critical thinking, looking at things with a ver- through a de- very different lens is essentially what you learned at the Ritz-Carlton, and now you carried it forward to, to, to BlackRock, right? I'm not sure you wanted to spend your whole career in that environment at, at Ritz-Carlton. It's, it's a high-stress, very customer-service-oriented place to work and Correct. you said it yourself like that boss that you had he ran people out because he was very demanding so yeah I want to get that three or four years of training but do you want to stay there your whole life no no <laughs> no it's um but it, to your point it was it, the training was invaluable uh and it affected my life the way they look at everything now and in a good way and I'm sure you know for you want to speak about you know the education of you get at law school. I mean, I've seen you read through documents and you're picking stuff out um, that I might have skipped over yeah. reading the same document. And, and that's what it teaches you. It teaches you how to, you know, dig into the word, it, you know, way it's written. Um, could it, is it open-ended? So someone could swoop in here and, you know, and change this and say, well, this doesn't, this is not, you know, it doesn't say exactly what you think it says. Yeah. Um, the rules of golf are like that in a way, you yeah. know, if you want to get into that where it can be, you know, you can read them in two different ways. So having that knowledge that you have, you know, in the industry, I can see it being invaluable, you know, just kind of knowing how to say, all right, this is a red flag. We need, we need to button this up before we move forward or, you know, speaking to borrows and saying, you know, these are, these are your roadblocks that you need to think about, you know, moving forward and these things are going to come your way and, you know, just giving advice to people, and you know, sometimes they take it, sometimes they don't, and sometimes you got to realize they don't have the experience you have. Yeah, you know, so it's hard, um, but you know, but you got to let people like, make mistakes at times, and but don't let it affect you or your reputation. And it goes back to just you know who you are as a person and, and your values and your morals and the way you want to run an operation, and you know, kind of use that as your compass again and just make decisions that way. But that's got to be hard for you, right? So, so you're in a unique situation of, obviously, you had all these awesome um, uh, mentors and head pros that you worked under, right? And, and 
So you're trying to do the same, right? And you've actually sent a couple of head pro, head assistant pros on to some really good jobs, right? Mikey Roy was one of your guys. He's down at Plymouth. There's somebody else, right? Uh, yeah, there's, I have to think. I think there's four or five guys that have worked for me that are now. That are now head professionals, right? Yeah. So, so you've now taken on that sort of mentor role. But, but part of that is how much rope do you give them as the assistant to sort of do it their way and make mistakes but not have it affect your overall operations to the point where you've got to answer to whether it's the members or the owner of the club or whatever the case may be, right? That's a fine line that you've had to walk. Yeah. No, it's – I think mistakes are good. It's the only way you learn. But to your point, like, you can't you can't let it affect the – you know, these people, you know, especially they're paying a lot of money and they work hard and they want to come there for an enjoyable experience to get away from the stresses of life and – you got to try to provide that for them. But at the same time, you're trying to educate and teach people um, how to look for these, you know, red flags and how to look for these roadblocks. And sometimes they need to do it on their own, you know. So I try to step back as much as possible and then come in at the last minute. And, you know, and I try to <laughs> save the day. Super pro. Yeah, well, I, and I also ask a lot of open-ended questions. You know, I guess it could be viewed as sarcasm at times. Yeah. But, you know, I just say – just ask questions of general, like, did you do this? Or what, ha- what if this happened? Yeah. Um, and this wait for them to respond and, you know, see how they respond. And sometimes, yeah, I've been there where, you know, I've people make mistakes and you got to be understanding of it. And the same thing, like I, if I know a kid's into it or I say kids, they're not kids, but for the right reasons and they're giving all their effort and they're trying to do their best. If they make a mistake, they make a mistake. I'll take it on the chin for them. Yeah. You know, I'll stand in front of the membership and, you know, I, and a very, and I joke around about this cause my wife's a nurse and she obviously has a, a real job compared to mine, but, um, saving lives. And, you know, I don't, I kind of equate it to, you know, nursing students and, you know, training hospitals where you have these young people who have learned this all in books but now they got to practice it, but they got to practice it on real people. Yeah. In so real situations. In real situations. Yeah. How do you toe that line? You know, and just, but if you don't give them the experience. They'll never get to where you are. You'll never get to there and you're never going to be able to leave them. Yeah. You know, we've had this conversation a lot about micromanaging and letting people go. And, you know, it's, I think at the end of the day, if you, they know you do your best to, to set what the end goal is and then just say, I don't care what you do, get here. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to check it to make sure you are there. Right. So so what happens to the guy or, or woman that keeps making the same mistake over and over again? How do you deal with that problem, That the one that where it's like, I've asked for this information on every single loan or every single deal for the past five deals, and every single time I have to go back and say, hey, where's the X? Where's the borrower's experience? Where's this? Where's that? You know, how do you deal with that situation? Yeah, so... You've probably experienced. Uh, that's probably the hardest part about managing people. Or it's hard managing yeah. people is not easy. Because um, you also get to know them on a personal level too, right. and so you like them, and you got to separate the two and and have real heart to hearts with them. Like what's going on, yeah. you know? And obviously, you're not into this because if you were, these things wouldn't continue to happen. That's so right. let's get you to somewhere where you want to be. Uh, is usually the conversation I have with people. You know, and, and sometimes they come back and say, you know, no, I'm sorry, and it gets better for a little while. But usually if that's going on, it's a sign of things to come. But just a great way to handle it, you know, not, hey, 
you're fired and get out of here, right? And I'm not going to try to help you out, right? That's sort of you're sort of melding the the professional boss situation with, hey, I'm still your friend here, and and yeah, this isn't the right spot for you. So let's maybe try and get you. Why don't you go out there and start looking around, and maybe we'll try and get you to the right spot. Yeah. Um, so just an interesting way to interesting way to do it, and, and sort of uh, and sort of like I said, meld the the boss and friend scenario. So so the you know the other side of so that gets into where uh, on the borrower side with crowd lending, sort of the, the attention to the detail, and I, and I tell uh, anybody that wants to invest in crowd lending the same thing. Like we got, I don't know, man, the crowd lending fund one private placement memoranda, really, you know, the very fancy document that we had the lawyer out in California draft up. It's got to be, I don't know, 60 pages long, right? So, and some people call us, I'll send it over to them, and then they'll call and say, hey, man, can you tell me what's in this document? And I'm like, I can't. I can, but I'm not going to, right? I'm going to hit you with the highlights, but my advice is always, you got to read it, or you got to have somebody that knows how to read a document like that, read it, right? Whether that's a lawyer or some other financial consultant. I can give you the high points, but, you know, the de- the devil's in the details of that document. And that's the that's the dro- that's the controlling document for anybody that invests with crowd lending. You got a you got the private placement memorandum which tells you exactly how our fund runs and what we can do with the money, what we can't do with the money, you know, who's doing what with the money, who's got the fiduciary duties to 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 run this fund. Uh, and sort of where you stack up and what you as the investor, where you stack up and what um, what things you can do and can't do, you know, uh, whether you have voting rights, whether you don't have voting rights, what do you have voting rights on and things like that. There's a lot of details in there. So, again, those investors um, that do come aboard, they familiarize themselves with that document. At, they put their money with us. They enjoy a nice return of 9 to 10%. Uh, we pay it out quarterly. But they know how they get their money, how how they're going to get their money out. They know what steps they have to take. They know how long they're locked up for. They know all these things. They're coming in as educated investors, and not because I I educated them, because that's the that's the kiss of death, right? Because the way I look at it, again, this goes back to sort of the law school mentality, right? How am I going to end up in a lawsuit here, right? So yep. Mark Gammons comes in and he collected all his money and he wants to invest a hundred thousand dollars with crowd lending. Call me up on the phone, and you essentially say, "Hey, tell me about the fund." So I tell you about the fund, and and you go ahead and invest, and you're not happy. Well, you said this. Well, you said that, right? So, so I have to say, I didn't say it, Mark. I told I told you it was in there, and then I told you to go read the documents. Correct. So I, I'm looking at it from that light, but again, the devil's in the details of that document. So, um, you know, that's that's sort of how. How that, you know, you back to your Ritz Carlton sort of training, yeah, fits into sort of every walk of life that every, every part of crowd lending and uh, whether it's investor side or the, or the borrower side. Well, I think what you're doing, I, I just if you want to relate it back to system professionals and staff and stuff, you know, if you the way you're doing it with your, you know, your investors or, or lenders is that you're giving them the all all the information they need, and you say, you know, you need to learn this on your own and come back to me with any questions, you're building trust with them and you're building a good relationship. And when the time comes for, you know, someone said, Hey, how did that deal go down? Who do you think they're going to recommend? Right. They're going to recommend you. So for me, like staff wise and recruiting and training, 
even for that problem child, if I treat him well on the way out and we're going to separate eventually, um, that's a great recruiting tool. Right. Right. It's just like, I'm going to do good by you, but you know, this is not your place, but let's find out what a good place is for you. What are you interested in? And let's use some connections. Um, and let's get you moving in the right direction. And that person tells another person and, you know, and in this day and age, I mean, I won't even get into the service industry and the golf industry and finding employees, but it's extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, your reputation better be good. Yeah. Or you're not getting anybody. Well, it's hard to pay those guys, right? So that's... Yeah, that's a whole... Yeah. I mean, it's hard to... System pros don't make a lot of money. They work long, long hours. They work all the holidays. You know, especially around here where the golf season is so short and the uh, service expectation from members is so high. You know, you got you got young guys making not a lot of money working 100-hour weeks. Yeah, during big member guests, yeah. 100-hour yeah. weeks, they're working... You know, somebody's working July 4th, somebody's working Memorial Day, somebody's working Labor Day, you know, uh, and sometimes it's you, yeah. right? I mean, you're at the top of the food chain, but, you know, there's been many a time where I've said, hey, let's go to the beach or let's go out on the boat or let's do something. You say, no, I got to work. And, you know, it doesn't register with me because you're at the top of the food chain, but you've got to give those other guys some days off, 100%. right? I mean, it's very much a team mentality when it comes to covering the shop or or covering the first tee, or whatever the case may be. And I think that builds a ton of credibility with you to be in the trenches with those guys. So that that's sort of the mentality that I try to take here with, with some of our employees, and certainly some of our borrowers. Like, hey, we're in the trenches here, right? I, I just had a conversation with a borrower recently about, um, you know, they, they, they owed some taxes on their property. The property was probably worth $350,000, and we had a loan on it for $220,000. And, you know, I'm working with this woman to get her, the taxes paid and, and get the situation cleaned up. And I'm saying to her, look at, I'm as much in this property as you are. You know, you've, yeah, it's worth $350,000 in a perfect world. So yeah, you, you've got a hundred and, you know, do the math, $130,000 in equity tied up, but I got $220,000 tied up. So you and I have to work together here. I'm not working against you up to a certain point. And then at some point I have to sort of say, well, I've got to look out for my interests. You're, you're no longer looking out for, for our interests yep. because it is very much a partnership when it comes to crowd lending and their borrowers. It's our project. Yeah. If the project is a success, we get paid, you get paid, you're going to go do another project, right? So, But at some point, that hour breaks down and, yep. it's, and it becomes adversarial. But I'm trying to avoid that because the old adage is sort of you get more, um, you get more bees with honey than you do vinegar, right? So the ultimate goal is to keep everybody sort of rowing in the same direction. Um, and, and you know, that's a great analogy, by the way, rowing. Do you, have you ever done any rowing? No, not really. Okay. So, so I digress for a half a second here. My, my oldest daughter, um, is on the crew team at her high school. So she had a great season and they had like a, they had like an event at the end of the year, like a banquet, but it wasn't a formal banquet. It was just sort of down at the boathouse, but the parents got to get into this, they call it the barge. It's like eight seats on each side, if you can picture it, and everybody's got an oar, and there's eight on the – is it eight or four? Maybe there's four on the starboard and four on the on the port side, and you go out and try to row, okay? And if everybody's not rowing in the same direction, you go nowhere. Yep. I mean, nowhere. And, you know, you had, we had eight, uh, I would say, very inexperienced oarsmen, oars people, whatever they call them, and then – you know, my daughter was on the boat, and there was a couple other students, crew people on the boat, and they're yelling instruction, 
and 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 they're all yelling different things at different times, and there's no direction, and with you know we're essentially going around in a circle at, in in the Charles River, and everybody's going by us, laughing at us, and you know making fun of us, and you know get off the boat, and Annabelle, my daughter Annabelle said, well, Dad, you guys couldn't get it. I said, well, first of all, there was five people shouting instructions, right? So that was very confusing for everybody, and then nobody could, nobody was rowing in the same direction. Yeah, and so great, just a great analogy that I, ha- you know, you say it and you don't really understand it, but I actually had the experience of people having people not <laughs> row in the same direction and it's, it, you know, we went nowhere. Um, so that's, uh, that's my rowing. You, you've never, you've never rowed or done crew or anything like that. Besides I mean, like a rowboat. I mean, that doesn't count. Canoe? Two people on it? Yeah. You rowing on like one on each side? Or yeah. Ha- yeah. Canoe's tough, I would guess. I've never been in a canoe. Uh, but no, no, no. That's actually really a lie. Good. I was actually in a kid canoe that ended up capsizing, and I ended up in the water. Another conversation for another day. I had to climb up the rocks at du- Duxbury Harbor with my wife and three children watching me climb up the rocks. All right, the so you want a, you want a great story I about do. the well, details? Yeah. <laughs> we can probably. So my dad has this amazing cabin up in the middle of nowhere in Maine. Does he still have it? Still has it. Um, there's two other cabins on the whole lake, and you go up there, and there's no. There was cell some phones. talk of him getting rid of that, right? Yeah, he's now he's going to keep it. Oh, good. Um, you're up there in the middle of nature. You wake up, and there's a moose in your backyard, and it's it's amazing. But we were young. I don't even know how old I was, but the whole family's up. I think my mom's been up to it once. Like, and there's an outhouse. You shower in the lake. I mean, it's rustic. Yeah, yeah. Um, how far away? It's a solid seven hours from here. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, almost on the Canadian border above Moosehead Lake. Um, but, it, like, amazing. You, you can't put a price on land like that anymore, yeah. being that far removed from everything. Yeah. No cell service up there. None. They are not getting the podcast on Spotify, YouTube, or iTunes? No. No, right? iTunes, no. Is You're it iTunes? What is it on? What is this on? I, what, I... The only you get, he had like a, believe it or not, he had like a wind-up radio back in the day. <laughs> Remember his, uh, who are the two car guys? Click and Clack or something like that? Yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? We might be aging ourselves here, but you could get those guys. Um, <laughs> so Colin, I was like in third grade. We're up there with the whole family with another family friends. And uh, my dad's and his buddy were like, you know what? What we're going to do is, you know, you guys can go tubing down this river and we'll pick you up at the bottom. So sounded great. We're all excited about it. So we all hop in into the river at this one point and we're in like those uh, snow tubes that you go down a, like a hill with. Yeah. So we probably get, and then the two dads take off. Um, we probably get five minutes into the trip and all of a sudden we notice kayakers with helmets and, and so <laughs> like... <laughs> They're 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 on the same path that you're correct headed down. So it, it turns out that they, uh, they sent us down like class three rapids in <laughs> snow tubes, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we're getting stuck in eddies. You know, and just like if you know an eddy, it's like you know a, a circle of water that you know circles behind rocks, and you can't get behind it. And the moms are yelling at us. Guys in kayaks are towing us back and forth. We're hiking up and down the main woods, you know, trying to grow around these rapids. So we get down to the, finally get down to the bottom. The two dads are sitting there, including my father, and they're, like, you know, hands in the air like, where where you guys been? <laughs> I'm surprised they made it out of Maine, to be honest with you. 
So they didn't research or you know do their homework on that trip. They they stuck two moms and six boys under the age of twelve on a on a river of class three. So they put they put the women on the rafts too. Oh yeah. So they thought it was gonna be like a lazy river Correct. ride. And they were gonna go down and have a couple of beers and get some peace and quiet. Correct. Yeah. That that was their plan. <laughs> they almost killed their family. It was. Yeah. <laughs> So. I love. I could only imagine uh, the feeling when you see the kayaker going by with the helmet on. That's when you're like, "Oh man!" Yeah, everyone knew at that moment we were in <laughs> trouble. I mean, I was young and I knew we were in trouble. Yeah, you noticed that detail. Yes, you noticed the detail of the woman with the helmet on going down the rapids, yeah. and you were in, uh, you know, a snow tube. That guy's got a lot more equipment on than I do. <laughs> Why, why is that? Yeah. What's going on here? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, that's funny. That's funny. You know what you should have said to your father when you got down to the, hey, Dad, why don't you be better at being <laughs> a father? <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But we all lived. It's a great and that, story. And it's a great story to share on the podcast. Oh, man, that's funny. That's funny. So, there's uh, yeah, there's a lot you can do. But, you know, again, back to just training and I think we, we've touched on it a bunch of times, but, you know, your reputation means a lot. And the fact that people know that you're, you're like, you know, that you said you're, you're in it with them, you're paddling together, it means a lot to people. And not only for that deal, but for, you know, deals that trickle down from that. And that's how you build a business. That's how you build a, a great operation. That's how you, you know, in anything in life, uh, how things become successful. It's not a... It's not something that you can just buy or, you know, put fancy marketing on or eventually that's going to fail that and fails. you see it over and over again. But, you know, so kudos to you for doing it the right way and, and building this thing up. It's been a pleasure watching you and I only hope more success for you. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Again, I think as you go through life and all these little nudges uh, help you find your path, much like they have with me and much like they have with Mark, uh, there's going to come a time where, uh, you know, you're going to need that nudge because at the end of the day, everybody needs a nudge. Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, glad to have you on. You are now the answer to a trivia question. Who was the first guest on the Everybody Needs a Nudge podcast? I appreciate it.